you to hear these words from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what the eyes see or decide by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. And the wolf shall live with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, And the calf and the lion and the fatling shall dwell together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. A nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and a weaned child shall put its hand in an adder's den." They will not hurt or destroy on all of my mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning, church. Again, it's a blessing to be back in San Angelo. Greetings from Abilene, Texas. You know, this text that I read a moment ago was one of those that just, uh, I have a hard time with it, actually. It, uh, it uh, calls forth what Kevin was inviting us to think about at the beginning of the service. What does it mean for us to pursue the light to look for the light of God. And this passage is so full of light, I I don't hardly, it doesn't relate so very well to my experience. And how how do we find light in a world that doesn't look anything like Isaiah 11? I was wrestling with that a little bit last night, actually. Uh, I was away for the early part of the weekend with a, a church, got in uh, back into Abilene about mid, mid-afternoon yesterday and um, sat down and started working on the sermon for today. And Vicki was busy working in the house and come about 5.30 or so, I, uh, she kind of passed by and I said, am I taking you out to dinner tonight? And she says, yes, you are. And I said, okay, well, she says, but I need to finish what I'm doing. And then I need to to get dressed to go out to dinner. And I looked at her, and she looked fine to me. She had jeans on, nice dark blue jeans and a a sweatshirt. And I kind of paused and says, I'm not good enough to even go to Sonic in this. And I thought, oh, I guess we're really going out tonight. 
So I began to ponder, what, what is she going to put on that's going to sort of dictate where we go to eat? Because, you know, uh, I was a little, a little nervous here. How do I sort this out? How do I know what exactly I'm getting myself into when I said something about going out to eat? And so I kind of watched as she would come by every few minutes to see what transformation occurred. And, uh, you know, on went a very nice sweater, and the next thing I know, she had jewelry on. Uh, David Tim, the next thing I saw were nice cowboy boots on. I thought, ooh, that kind of, I don't guess we're going out all the way tonight, but, you know, where does it go? In fact, it was so hard for me to discern that, I finally gave her three choices. Kind of a, you know, nice pizza joint, a nice Mexican place, and then our favorite place in Abilene, the beehive, where you can go in cowboy boots and be dressed up. And uh, she, uh, that, that helped me sort that out. We, we ended up with pizza, by the way, last night. But uh, sorting things out, kind of figuring what is going on, what is going on, what is it, where do we find light in the world when there is darkness? How do we sort out uh, things when we read a text like this where everything is so perfect perfect and picturesque and tranquil and wonderful, lions and lambs living together and all that sort of thing, that's not the world that I inhabit, though I know that people have tried from the very get-go to find ways to do that. The early church tried to make that happen in Jerusalem. People moving to this country in the late 1700s and 1800s tried to do that. There was a guy by the name of George Rapp who moved, in, who moved into uh, to eastern Pennsylvania and established a, a communal attempt to have a utopian community there. And uh, they tried for a few years there, and then they moved on out to southwestern Indiana and formed a place called Harmony, Indiana. Lived there for 10 years sold it to another guy by the name of Robert Owen. And uh, this is Owen's vision of what New Harmony was supposed to look like, a utopian community. Everybody lives together. Everybody's going to be at peace with uh, one another. We're going to beat our swords into plowshares. We're going to live this perfect life. Owen's community, which never looked like this, by the way, this was his vision of it, lasted three years before there were riots and the dissolution of the whole thing. Uh, it's, it's kind of a neat place to go visit today. There's still a few buildings there, but nothing much came of it all. Rapp moved back to uh, eastern Pennsylvania near Ambridge, about 18 miles outside of, uh, of uh, I said eastern, western Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh, and there uh, built a place called Economy. It, it lasted through the 1800s, until 1906 when the last person died, you see their utopian community did not call for procreation. Celibacy was the sort of the name of the game. It's sort of hard to have an ongoing community that way, if you might kind of put that together. Didn't work. It didn't work. Early Americans wrestled with this sort of thing. One of the most famous artists of the early 1800s was a Quaker by the name of Edward Hicks. Maybe you've seen this scene. This is the peaceable kingdom, obvious influence by Isaiah 11, our text. Can you see it? All these creatures, all of God's creatures living peaceably together. Little children playing around there. 
and, uh, and echoes of the early vision of those who settled in Pennsylvania uh, out of the uh, Quaker tradition. You see over in, on what would be your left, uh, Native American people standing or being there with uh, Europeans, working out a way that we're going to all live peaceably together. You know, Hicks painted about 60 or 80 of these, uh, trying to get it right. Because the longer he lived, the less it actually worked itself out in reality. It's really quite fascinating. It doesn't work. It hasn't worked. Just 10 days ago, one utopian leader, a guy by the name of Fidel Castro, finally, uh, his life finally came to an end. He was trying to create a utopian community in Cuba. How well did that work? Bloodbath everywhere. You see, whenever people start to get their heads around the idea that we're going to create a utopian community, and particularly those who try to do it by force and violence, uh, it, it doesn't work. It falls apart. The wheels come off. It doesn't happen. How can we, in this longing that we have to live life at peace with one another, with joy, uh, where people get along with every, everything, where everything kind of works together well, how, do we, how can we accomplish that? Where can we find that? Even in our best days, we see the darkness. It's around us. Whether it's bus accidents with school children, whether it's fires raging in Gatlinburg, or whether it's uh, just this past week I've had a good friend diagnosed with lung cancer who's way too young and never smoked a cigarette. What's he, where did that come from? Or another friend who's dealing with a, a new levels of MS in his life. Every time we turn around, we see the reality of darkness. How am I supposed to find the light in all of that? That is the world that we inhabit, and it's the world that Isaiah inhabited in our text so many, many, many years ago. Eight centuries before Jesus Christ. The Assyrians had swept through his homeland, Isaiah's homeland, and pretty well cleaned it out. Had chopped up everything, taken away the crops, taken away the livestock, and had destroyed anything that would produce anything. Cutting off olive trees, chopping them up, taking off everything. There they sat devastated, and yet Isaiah has this vision that seems to think that there's an alternative possibility for them, something that's not darkness that could be there. And he does it, and he opens up this poem with a little image of a stump, the stump of Jesse. It's a powerful image, and one that I want to make sure that you capture, because I think it helps us. It helps me. Now, this photograph is not a very good photograph, uh, but it is an olive tree. And it is a, it's an olive tree uh, from Israel. Uh, I slipped over someplace over in Galilee, took this. Uh, it's a stump. And, uh, and you know what? Olive trees are just, well, they're like <laughs> having moved to West Texas. Here, let me get to this real quick. Olive trees are like mesquite. Is that all? That's all I need to say, right? You cut a mesquite off, what happens? It comes right back. You chop it up, you beat on it, you cut everything. If there's any root left, what happens? It comes back. Olive trees are the same way. Okay? Now, so hear, hear this. Uh, when Isaiah says that out of the stump of Jesse, there's going to come a new branch. It's a word about hope. 
It's a word that says, I know that everything looks bleak. I know, well, and you've got to realize that olive trees, unlike mesquite, are useful. <laughs> All right? That's where the image, I kind of didn't want to do that this morning, but I knew that that would communicate. Uh, because olive trees are quite useful. Olives and olive oil. It was good as gold to have olives and olive vineyards. Rich, wealth, prosperity are all bound up in an olive tree. When Isaiah said, look, I know that things look bleak, but there's a shoot popping up. There is new hope. There's new possibilities. And this new possibility that's in the midst of all of the bleakness will usher in a whole new kind of creation, a whole new beginning. The Spirit of the Lord will be on this person. And here we hear echoes of all that we see manifest in the presence of Jesus the Christ. That with him and his spirit, there'll be wisdom and understanding. He'll come with justice and equity. And here, point, uh, we see this picture becoming uh, real with reality of what it is that Jesus brings into the world. What Isaiah is doing, even as he paints a picture that looks so unlike our world, is he's evoking for us the possibility of hope. That God is at work, even in the bleakness of our world and in our lives, to renew and begin something new. You know, it's interesting, the word spirit that shows up all through this text. The spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and his spirit will be this, his spirit will be that. Is actually a way of playing with something else. It's, it's, it's playing with uh, the very, uh, the word spirit is also the word for wind, it's also the word for breath. It is the breath of God that brings new creation that's being spoken of here by Isaiah. Newness, new possibilities, new beginnings, even in spite of everything that looks to the contrary. God is present at work. Now, that's hope for me, and I hope it is for you as we read this text And yet, we're still wrestling with the fact that we don't see lions and lambs laying together. You guys know that I'm a hunter, and when I'm out in the field, I don't see lions and lambs laying around together. What I see are coyotes stalking quail, like I said just recently. (sighs) You know, it's the survival of the fittest out there. Nothing, this text has nothing about the way I experience nature. There's something about this that seems so foreign to us. And yet what I think Isaiah is trying to do is cast a vision for us of what God is seeking to do in our world and will bring to pass in his own good time. The challenge is, how do we we live into it? How do we lean into it? How do we see the light of it? And I want to suggest some things that echo out of this text that I think might help us in this. How do, we, how do we lean into that? How do we see the light in our broken world? Part of it, I think, begins as a poem that I recently saw uh, from a, an old German uh, poet speaks about, is that we, we begin to work with the vision of what we see and what we experience and let it work on us. That the, the possibility of, of how a vision can change us 
ourselves. Rilke, German poet, would write, Lovely are the hills under my gaze, bathed in sunlight. The path I have only just begun goes on ahead. So we are encompassed by that which we cannot comprehend, full of visions coming from the far reaches, and it transforms us even when we do not attain it. That's what I'm talking about. What happens when we choose as a people who are identified by Jesus Christ to live the kind of vision that Isaiah envisions? When we begin to let that shape our behavior and our actions and our convictions, the world becomes different. We are a part of God's transformation when we live into this kind of reality, letting the vision transform us. Probably the best example that I could think of as I reflect on this uh, was an, an incident that occurred six and about a half years ago. Six and a, in, in August of 2010, in August in 2010, in Chile, one of the, I think, the world's leading producer of copper, uh, in one of the mines there, a horrible mine accident occurred. You remember that? 33 miners were trapped deep below the surface of the earth. In fact, uh, for seven, I think it was 17 days, no one knew on the surface whether they were alive or dead. 17 days, and it took about 90 days to finally get them up out of the earth. Can you imagine the terror of that? Uh, and, uh, yet, this, these 33 miners all came out of that alive and relatively healthy. And the only reason, the reason they would give to you that they were able to do that was they had a vision. And that vision shaped their life together. In fact, the first time that people on the surface ever even heard from them was a little message that got sent up to them. Now, my Spanish is not too good, but it's something like, we are well in the place, in the shelter place, all 33 of us. Uh, do you see the word refuge, shelter? It's almost like a psalm. <laughs> we are safe. We are safe and well in a shelter. And that, that was where they, they were deep in a place that had, was a shelter spot. Now, here's what happened with those guys. The foreman, for, the foreman a guy by the name of Luis, uh, was mature enough to bring them all together and they made a commitment that they were all going to survive this. They were all going to live. They all, had a, they all chose jobs that they would be responsible for. There was an older man who was a spiritual person. He became the chaplain. There was another guy who was a writer and he kept a, a chronicle, a diary, a journal, a log. He was their communications guy. There was another one who'd had some basic uh, medical training and he became the doctor. Doctor, They called him Dr. House after the TV show. There, was, there were others, all, everybody had a special job. There were some that were specially skilled who were explorers trying to find ways to escape and get out. Uh, to, to, uh, there were others who took care of what foods they had and, and managed the supply of, the, a, a dwindling supply of food. Everyone had a job. They voted democratically about everything. 30, uh, all 33 uh, made a covenant that they were going to come through this thing together. It was their vision about the future that shaped their capacity to live in deep, deep crisis for over 90, for 70 or 90 days. It's an amazing story. 
Every one of them came out. It took them 30 hours. When they finally got a, a channel open, they brought them out one by one through a special device. They survived and they thrived because they believed in something and it transformed their community and kept them alive. Church, I'm inviting you this morning to believe in the gospel story, to believe in as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ, that in our, in our, even in our brokenness, even in the things that we see in the world that disappoint us and that we struggle with, the message about Jesus Christ is the transforming vision that renews us and gives us hope in our world. And the way in which I think we find that light and we look for that light comes not in something fantastic or something that's beyond us. It comes in the most ordinary sorts of ways. I want to invite you this week to look for the presence of God in ordinary places, in ordinary ways. The the ancient Celtic peoples, uh, as they embraced Christianity, embraced it in a very distinctive way. They saw that in ordinary things, God was present to them. This quote by Esther DeWall, a scholar of Celtic Christianity, uh, speaks to this. One of the gifts of Celtic life was that it was a practice in which ordinary people in their daily lives took the task that laid a hand but treated them sacramentally as pointing to some greater reality the, that lay beyond them. It is an approach to life that has been, we are in a danger of losing the sense of allowing the extraordinary to break into the ordinary. Celtic Christians uh, prayed and saw the presence of God in the most ordinary of things. When the house, the master of the house would smore a fire or bank up a fire for the night so that it would be there in the morning, no matches to light a fire in, ancient, in, uh, in Ireland uh, in the 1800s or northern Scotland. You banked up the fire so it would glow. You did so by saying a prayer that the fire of the Holy Spirit would rest in this house. When you got up in the morning, you thanked God for a new day and a new beginning and your baptism because you were walking a new day of life because of the presence of God. When you broke bread together, when you went out to take care of the cows, whatever you were doing, there was a prayer that reminded those ancient Christians of of the presence of God in their world. God is no less present to us, and yet we can often go through lickety-split a day and never think once about the presence of God in our world. No wonder we're shocked and surprised when we read about lions and lambs, when we're not even paying attention to the presence of God after a good night's sleep or a fresh pot of coffee as it hits our nostrils and to say, thank you, God, for a new day. Let's find ways to find God at work in the most ordinary places of our lives. And when we do, and we allow this vision to transform us, we will be the kind of people God is inviting us to be this Advent season. People who live out of hope. And I would suggest to you as I close this, this word this morning, that that's the very thing that God longs and invites us to be. And in fact thinking about visions, and thinking about a world where lions and lambs live together, where shalom and peace is present, it will only come, I believe, and I'm following an old dead guy here by the name of Martin Luther on this point, that it is only the hopeful people 
that bring about transformation in our world. Everything that is done in the world is done by those who are hopeful. Can I invite you today to be a person who seeks after the light of Jesus Christ? May I invite you this morning to look for that light in the ordinary places of life. Can I invite you this morning to let your life be transformed by the vision of Isaiah? I know that we don't see much of it sometimes in our world, but our world is longing for people and communities of people who cast that kind of vision and lean into it with all they have. Can that be our calling this Advent season? I hope it will be. Can we help you in that journey? Won't you come now as we stand and sing?